Greetings and salutations. You are listening to the Into the North podcast, where we take a look at the competitive side of the Commander format, also known as CDH. I am one of your hosts, Reed, aka Sick Robot, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Singular Morgan, aka Celine Face. How's it going? Um, and in this episode, uh, we're going to be covering uh, something a bit different. Uh, we're going to be going over sort of um, how me and Morgan uh, prep tournament sort of tournament lists uh maybe like lists that we like if you're not going to call them tournament lists like lists that we uh want to optimize as much as possible for like a given meta or um aren't really building the deck uh to have fun brewing it but more building the deck in order to you know get wins with it and make a deck that we think is as good as possible yeah sort of how we approach more serious deck building yeah that that's a much better uh use of the term um this is also uh for any viewers listening uh this is a first for us in that this is actually going to be our first two-person into north episode um so we'll see how it goes uh let us know how you liked it um but realistically this is mostly just because matt linden couldn't make this recording and we need to get something out so uh don't what are you talking about too much if it goes bad Uh, all right um so with that out of the way uh let's just hop into housekeeping pretty quick um of course we always have to thank our new patrons um so thank you to memo thank you to espen o uh tmh legolas uh daniel l and victor s uh you guys all rock uh thanks for helping out um uh, i think this is the first batch of people that were probably getting after our um the release of our gameplay uh episode gameplay pilot um so thanks a lot uh much appreciated goes towards helping that helping this helping all of the above paying us back for equipment that we never really paid ourselves back for all that good stuff um so yeah much appreciated um we'll go on to uh new developments now um so only a couple of things here um first of all uh, Okotoberfest, uh, is coming up, uh, on November the 18th to 20th in Philadelphia. Uh, me and Morgan are going to be going to that one, so if you're heading out to Okotoberfest, uh, make sure to find us at the venue, say hi, hang around for a bit, uh, would be much appreciated, and yeah, I think it's gonna be a good time. Um, we didn't really get to see Philadelphia at Punt City, uh, so I'm actually sort of, like, excited to you know actually go check out the city and not have it be copenhagen 2.0 for us <laughs> i mean okay never mind we we sort of solved the copenhagen issue the uh, last time we went but <laughs> we saw a couple things we did some stuff <laughs> we did some rode, rode a hundred year old roller coaster you know yeah exactly um yeah and the other the other new development we have uh which will probably not be a shock if you're watching slash listening to this on youtube uh is that we released our first gameplay episode uh just a couple weeks ago uh if you follow us exclusively on uh, a podcasting platform you may not have seen that so uh definitely go check it out we're uh we're really happy with it and it seems like you guys are too so uh yeah we're gonna be releasing uh looks like we're gonna be trying to release one of those a month um and yeah check it out let us know what you think yeah super fun to record and uh it's great to see everybody uh everybody liking this the uh 
liking the result um obviously as well like feel free to drop um some suggestions and stuff we actually have a channel in our discord um for if you're watching uh any of our gameplay and you have any ideas that you think we should know about um yeah feel free to let us know because we're also all about improving it um because we, we want it to be high quality <laughs> i i feel like it's already high quality but we want it to be even higher quality um so yeah let us know cool um so that actually gets us into the main topic here um so yeah we're gonna be sort of um we're gonna be trying to go through like step by step sort of what our deck building process is for like real deck building like real nitty-gritty like optimization like deck building that takes place over the span of like literal months versus like two hours before a stream to put a jack deck together and then like various tinkering at points of like 15 minutes per week after that um this 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 episode is more about like how we do like if if we know about a tournament like three months ahead of time and we want to prep a list for it like that this is that that's more about like how we go about that kind of uh deck building here um so yeah, and it, it's also yeah. like we're we're really trying to get into it's not necessarily like just a, a mechanical process but we're trying to sort of uh discuss how we think about various facets of deck building um and we're going to be using our the work we've been doing on uh sacred hermit over the last i guess year or so uh yeah as sort of a a touchstone so for those of you who have wanted us to go a little deeper on this deck you're going to get some of our thoughts but the episode is not going to be uh just you know focused purely around it's not a hermit druid special episode no is what i'm saying <laughs> yeah it is this is in fact just a regular episode um for anybody uh sort of not aware i guess i guess we should just give a quick rundown of like what we're actually like talking about in terms of that deck just so nobody's completely blindsided and has to go look for lists although i will link um i guess i'll link a couple of the tournament lists that I have sitting around. Morgan, you can probably um, drop a couple as well, and I'll put them in the description. Yeah, um, sure. Uh, just so you have context, but um, for anybody listening that doesn't have time to go check a link, um, uh, Sacred Hermit is a Thrasios Timna a Hermit Druid deck, um, which was... It's it's playing some pretty stock packages, except uh, more like more mid rangey and like good cardy than um, you might historically see in a lot of like Turbo Hermit lists. Uh, as well as the fact that it is playing no white cards aside from Timna and Sacred Guide. Uh, Sacred Guide is basically a consultation on legs that requires you to not play any other white cards in your main deck. Um, so, sort of like, just like, it turns all your creature tutors into uh, into consults, which is pretty neat. Um, and and that's... No notably, it doesn't uh, require tapping, so there's... Yes. Uh, it doesn't have the summoning sickness issue that either Hermadruid or Divining Witch uh, have. Yep. Uh, and this, again, for context, is uh, this has been the tournament list that we've played for, I think, the past six-ish months straight. Or, like, the main tournament list. Yeah, um, for sure. So, yeah, around there. Um, so, yeah, we've been playing in tournament for a while, and it was in development for, like, months before then. Um, so, we, we, we have, like, almost, yeah, almost, like, a full year of a brewing process uh, behind that one, which just makes it ripe for uh, examples um, for some of the subpoints that we're going to get into. Um, but yeah, um, so I think we can probably move into the main topic then. Um, oh, I did want to, yeah, uh, I did want to put a disclaimer at the front of this too that, um, so it, it's weird because like I hate coining new terminology terms, but this is definitely something that I feel like both me and Morgan have noticed that like, like, or like relatively recently have like actually verbalized and have been like, oh, right, this is like, 
actually a difference between like there there are some people in the format that view deck building in some ways and some people that view deck building in other ways um so we are both i think what we would call empirical deck builders meaning um me and morgan both build decks and like optimize and brew primarily based on our own like lived experience with those decks um so like we will put together a list from like cards that we think are good slash like put together like just a base list and then our optimizations on that list will come from us playing games very quickly recognizing like what we like about it what we don't like about it and then making uh card change or like swaps and changes to accommodate that um and that is in like as opposed to uh what i think we would call like theoretical deck building which i i would say linden is uh, a practitioner of like primarily um to a pretty high degree and i i know a few other people i i would say uh charles probably falls into mono white guy charles probably falls into being a theoretical deck builder as well um where i a lot of the way that those people build uh decks is more based on the theory of uh like these packages should interact in this way and like having a sort of like a, a framework going into the deck building without having actually having like as much lived experience with testing the deck. I know that was a bit randomly. The point being um, this a lot, this entire like process like might be applicable to theoretical like or theory first uh, deck building. Um, but really this is like more describing our, experience in our process as like experience first or empirical deck builders yeah and i think like generally certainly the way we identify problems with our list yes is, yes is empirical and that it's like we play games we try and get games against various different decks and then it's like okay in this sort of situation you know how comfortable am i you know do i feel like i need some more tools here or there uh as opposed to sort of uh crafting the deck with uh an approach of um you know having like a more ha having or sorry crafting the deck with an approach where you try and think through all these problems and have uh solutions that maybe wind up like fitting together a little bit more nicely because sometimes uh, our process can lead to like swaps that you know look a little bit strange and like they may even be wrong because you know we've we've had our experience has like disproportionately included certain types of uh issues that we then like corrected for or maybe overcorrected for. So there's definitely advantages and disadvantages to both. Yeah. Um but yeah, that's just sort of how we uh approach it. Um and yeah, cool. Um I think I was about to add something else on, but it has totally left my mind at this point so let's get into talking about the actual process um uh so i think we can probably start at um like the the beginning of like where we actually would start in this process which is uh really just like basically identifying what deck we actually want to build um which i mean tons of different uh, factors that go into this uh i think just a few that we have written down here are um I mean, the, the huge one, obviously, uh, identifying, like, what niche you actually need a deck for. Um, so this is stuff like what's actually, like, what you anticipate being in a meta or what is currently in a meta that you're trying to deal with. Um, 
what is what are the type of play patterns that you need the deck for what problems do you need the deck to solve what do you need to, to be able to play through are you can you afford to skimp in some areas what are those areas what does that mean for the actual deck that you're putting together um etc cetera, etc cetera. sort of like that kind of stuff um yeah i guess before before we get deeper into that i do want to yeah. say um one of the things that sort of pushed uh, us towards wanting to make this episode was a, a short discussion I got in uh, on Reddit when someone, there was a thread, someone was asking about Sacred Guide versus not Sacred Guide Hermitrid. And one of the comments, um, I'll, I'll read part of it, um, and I actually sort of wound up disagreeing, and uh, that made me sort of think about why I disagreed, because what they were saying seemed at first blush to make a lot of sense to me, and then I was like, but I, that definitely hasn't been sort of our approach or experience, so uh, you know, why is that? And so what they said was, uh, I think it depends on where you want to position yourself in the meta. If you're trying to be fast at all costs, Sacred Guide is probably a solid way to help yourself get there. Losing out on Silence really hurts, but most of the other cards you mentioned, which I believe were Dranith Magistrate, uh, Ranger Captain, uh, possibly, I think they mentioned Enlightened Tutor, yeah. um, and Swords. Uh, but the other decks you mentioned fit more into a mid-range game plan. Anyways, if you're wanting to be a more mid-range deck, losing out on cards like those uh, to make Sacred Guide uh, work would just not really fit into that strategy. And so, like, I can see exactly, you know, why they were, where they were coming from, right? Like, the Sacred Guide is just an extra win-con piece, and it lowers your overall card quality because there's a bunch of cards that you just can't play that are good and you want to play. Um, but I think, like, when we get into talking about sort of the games you're comfortable playing and the niches you're trying to fill, uh, you'll see why, like, on sort of second-order considerations, it actually winds up being a little bit the opposite has been our experience. Yeah. Uh, and, and we, like, can probably end up talking a bit more about that uh, as well later, about, like, the, like, the incentives that certain swaps... Um, give you as opposed to like just the like the the actual there's like the the impact of adding one specific card to your deck and there's the impact on deck building of adding that specific card to your deck and those are two different things um but yeah so well yeah we'll we'll get into the sort of that stuff later but um we will start at the as is uh and i completely forgot the quote oh well We'll start at the start, at the beginning. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, talking about specifically um, identifying sort of why you want a specific deck or what factors are going to go into you thinking about what deck you want to play or what deck you want to build. Um, so I, I think I went through a couple of those already. Uh, and then um, I guess we can talk. Ooh, we didn't do a whole i gotta be completely transparent we did not do a whole lot of uh talking about how we we're actually going to structure this conversation we just sort of have a bunch of notes um so i guess we can talk about yeah you know what Let, let's go in depth on this first point um and then we can sort of do that for each point afterward as well um so in terms of uh sort of identifying what niche you want to deck for um again i i did go through a couple already uh but basically how those affect what uh, deck you're looking to choose and what deck you're looking to brew um, can sort of be fluid and uh, I think probably a good thing to remember about this step just in general is that um, you have to try to not have preconceived notions about 
um, specifically uh, how certain commanders are supposed to work, and then also how certain strategies or certain cards are supposed to function, slash, like, what they actually, um, like, what, what the end goal of playing those cards is, uh, because you can sort of run into traps immediately at this stage of, like, writing off certain strategies, certain card packages, certain commanders, um, because they don't like a like necessarily like immediately line up with what you think your goals are for brewing a certain deck, um, and then you come to find out later that it's like, oh wait, I probably shouldn't have ruled those out. Like I I might have been able to like make swaps or like change them around a bit, and then like have like basically like a deck that I didn't think was actually going to solve a lot of those problems, but actually ended up solving those problems. Example here for us is like I think historically a lot of people have considered. Hermitrude to be a pretty fast all-in strategy um, that operates uh, for speed at the expense of card quality um, and also, you know, like win-con density, quote-unquote win-con density at expensive card quality because you're turning all of your creature tutors into Hermitrude um, tutors, which is a win. Um, but like, that isn't actually what we were building for when we identified Hermitrude. What we actually identified Hermitrude as is like, you know, it's a one-card win con in a deck that doesn't necessarily, or in like in a color combination, um, which is uh, Tim the Thrasios, that doesn't necessarily have good like one card win cons that are like that fast. And like, what does that mean for deck building? Well, it means that like you might actually be able to build a bit more mid range because it means that like you have this package that just lets you like win the game on command. So it means that you can just like change your deck a bit more. Anyway, I'm not going to get like too into the weeds on that one, but you know, like just. Not falling into the trap of, like, I'm going to write off Hermit Druid for this, like, niche that I think I need a mid-range deck for just because, like, Hermit Druid is, like, historically considered to be a fast strategy. Yeah, I think, I think like, what, what about our approach sort of uh, allows us to do that is that uh, a lot of, and, like, this has happened in our discussions, is that we approach deck building in terms of, like, identifying a set of problems. Um, and then when you start looking for solutions to those problems, you might sort of realize that, you know, okay, you know, he here's a problem, uh, you know, in stalled out games, it's really hard to resolve demonic consultation, right? Like just people have, yep. you know, a million dispels and fluster storms and whatever. And like people have let a, people let value engines resolve because their interaction is like generally, you know, more narrowly tuned to stopping win cons. And it's like, okay, well, how do we deal with that? Well, I mean. You know, Dispels and Flusterstorms don't counter Hermitruid. They don't counter Sacred Guide. You know, that means, uh, you know, is that something we can approach? And I think in the past, we might have sort of said, no, that doesn't really work because particularly with Hermitruid, you know, the worst part of Hermitruid, and I've said this several times, has always been Dread Return. Um, and Dread Return's pretty easy to stop. But now, you know, with the Malevolent Hermit, that that was sort of what gave us the the impetus to look at it again as like, can Hermitruid work later in the game when people have the interaction based off the strength of the Malevolent Hermit uh, making it uncounterable? Um, and then we sort of took that in a few different directions, and uh, I believe even we went so far as read... Are you playing Hermitruid or is it Divining Witch? In I'm actually just on Divining Witch now. Yeah. Basically like, completely off the Hermitruid package, yeah. But, but those types of cards, the cards that can, you know, use an ability to exile your library uh, yeah. are actually a pretty good solution to say like, you know, metas where there might be a lot of things like rule of laws or deafening silence. Um, so it's really hard to resolve your combo pieces when they're 
easy to counter and it's even harder to defend them. Um, and so that was sort of the approach we were looking for, which is what brought us back to Hermantruth. Yeah, and I, like, it's, it might be sort of, like, a difficult thing to uh, get into, like, the headspace for if you, like, haven't done uh, this sort of, like, thing before. But um, I, I think it's pretty productive uh, if you are building toward a meta um, to potentially just, like, break down the uh, sort of, you know, like, what the factors of that, like, local meta or, like, what factors are going into, like, making you build a certain deck into a set of, like, identifiable problems that need solving, um, which is, again, like, sort of how we tend to, like, just, like, internally, like, automatically conceptualize, like, how we need to build the deck for a meta. Um, just because, like, having, like, distinct problems that you need to solve um, gives you, like, actual actionable things uh, to work on for a brew, which I find is, like, gives you a lot more guidance and is a lot more useful than just like having some nebulous like oh okay i need to solve stacks meta so i'm going to build counter stacks deck <laughs> like that's that's not super useful or like specific enough a lot of the time to get like good results consistently so you know just like being a bit more uh breaking it down a bit more um than that and like giving yourself like actual things to work on for a deck and like things to go back and check versus like once i'm done brewing the deck okay let's go check like did this actually solve all the problems that I needed it to solve? Yeah, and I think this is where our sort of empirical approach uh, really shines because, you know, when you look at something like, okay, there's a lot of stacks, how do I solve that? You can sort of go off on a bunch of tangents, like, okay, what are the stack stacks? Well, you know, Winota's a really popular one. Uh, I need to deal with Winota. Okay, that that is true, and, you know, that's especially if you're trying to play a longer game and you're, say, going to a tournament, you're going to encounter Winotas, and they might just run you over in the longer game. You do need answers to that. But, you know, now you're off on, on a bit of a rabbit hole on, like, focusing on a specific deck and not necessarily trying to um, solve, you know, a specific problem. You're solving a general problem. Uh, and when you play games against stacks, it's like, okay, I got run over by Winota. I'll put in some removal. I'll put in some... You know, if I can support the hate for it, like a Graf Digger's Cage or whatever, then great. Um, but uh, you can also then go, okay, uh, you know, throughout this game, what was happening? Well, you know, I was drawing cards and I could assemble a win. I just didn't feel like it was going to resolve. Maybe because, you know, there's there's stacks effects like, like a Deafening Silence and... Uh, you know, this, I just don't think I can back things up. Okay, well, what are some other approaches to that problem? Or, like, what are solutions to that problem? Okay, well, I could just put in a bunch of ways of destroying all the stacks effects, or I could, you know, tech myself to win through that in some other way, try and make my win cons resilient to various stacks effects. Um, and those are problems, like, problems like that just become a lot easier to identify when you play a bunch of games and you experience them. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, and just yeah, it it's really just about like you're you're just going to encounter situations and like get to the root of problems much faster than like if you had conceptualized like or like spent your time like exclusively conceptualizing around like how I need to solve this very broad problem. Um, which actually, uh, this sort of like does 
dovetail a bit into the next part. I, w- I won't say it perfectly dovetails into it, but <laughs> I'll make the segue work anyway. Um, which is along with the actual like what would be like maybe external factors um, for determining like what kind of deck you want to build, what deck like you need and what problems you need to solve um, is also what kind of deck slash game slash strategy you're actually comfortable playing. Um, this is a pretty huge one that um, is also can be a stopping block at some points for uh, people who like are looking at this style of deck building or just like looking at a style of deck building where they like want to solve problems um but the answers that like those problems lead you to to solve them are maybe outside of your comfort zone by a pretty significant margin you might be like a very very heavy stacks player um and it might end up being that the realization that is that like you have a bunch of these problems that you need to solve but the answer to those problems that you just play the fastest turbo deck in the format um which you might not be super comfortable with right so maybe like that's not actually a viable solution for you right now and that you may need to like take another look at that and actually like evaluate okay like okay maybe i'm not comfortable enough right now to play like a super fast turbo deck uh, instead of my usual stack stuff how about we look at take a look inside of the sphere of like specifically stacks decks or stacks adjacent decks and like try to look for solutions within those bounds yeah yeah and i think like this is uh, an important factor uh, or something to consider is that even within archetypes, there are a lot of variations. Um, and, you know, you might think that, like, okay, I'm playing, you know, I used Winota as an example earlier. I'm playing a stacks deck, um, and uh, I'm just getting run over. Whenever I see Winota, you know, I'm putting out my stacks pieces. They're putting out their stacks pieces. I'm putting out, like, whatever my commander is. I don't know, let's say you're playing, like, Timna Kodama, right? You're going, okay, I'm putting out my Timna... I'm putting up my Kadama, and then that's letting me, you know, turn every permanent I play into a second permanent, so I'm basically putting out two things a turn. Uh, and Winota's just generating tokens and putting out 12 things a turn and just flattening me. What do I do? Yeah. Well, you know, obviously you might say, okay, I'm gonna pick some, like, radically different deck. Um, you know, I'm gonna go Turbo, I'm gonna play Rog Silas, and, like, they're going to be casting Winota, and I'm going to be casting Adnaz in response, and they're going to look like a fool, or whatever. Um, but even within stacks, you know, you might go, okay, well, my problem is I'm being run over by Winota. Uh, there seems to be sort of three solutions to this. I need to make myself too big to be run over. I need to stop Winota from getting big enough to run me over. Or I need to just end the game before they get that big. And, you know, within those parameters, you could have, um, you know, some other, like, giant combat deck. Um, like, I, I'm not necessarily sold on, on Kamal, but, like, something like Jetmir can actually uh, right. put, put out a board that can just try and clock a Winota faster than they can clock you. Or um, you could just tech yourself to have a bunch of removal, uh, go for, you know, early Draneths, whatever, to stop Winota from getting big. Or you could look more in the direction of a deck like Blue Pod, where you say, yeah, sure, Winota's gonna, you know, on turn five, Winota's gonna, like, slap me for 15 or whatever, and then I'm gonna untap, and I'm gonna play Birthing Pod, and then I'm gonna combo kill them, and they're in Boros, so they're not gonna have anything to say about it. Um, and all of those are approaches that, uh, you know, give you something to try and solve it without having to completely reinvent yourself as a player. Um, it, it is, like, 
to be clear, I'm not saying never switch archetypes, even if you're not comfortable with them. Um, it, it really is going to depend on what your goals are. If you have a tournament that's, say, several months out and you, you really want to take it seriously and do the best you can, um, it might be worth it to, to try a different archetype and, and learn that. Um, obviously, if your tournament is in two weeks, that might not be as... Uh, realistic probably not goal. as sustainable of a solution <laughs> but but yeah there are definitely ways to uh you can look for ways to solve problems within spaces and even if they won't necessarily be the best way to solve a problem uh they'll still you know be at least partial solutions to those problems that you're encountering yeah you'll you'll end up better off than you were even if it's not like a perfect solution um it's really just, like, not about, like, running into the stumbling block of, like, oh, this is, like, these, these problems are pushing me in a direction that I, like, am not super comfortable in. I'm just gonna, like, not, like, handle them at all and just, like, continue playing what I'm comfortable with. Um, which is, like, I, I think that's, like, the failure case, right? Like, the, the success case should be that, like, you're willing to change your deck, how you play your deck, change, like, what cards that you, like, are actually, like, interested in for certain situations. Uh, to solve problems and doing that in like a, a a way that like aligns with your current skill level with like any given strategy um, at all. Uh, yeah, and then this one, this like we have a last point here for um this sub sub topic whatever um that I I would say this is sort of like more of a ancillary point to the other two, but um really it's this one is just like figuring out if your current deck actually or like current deck current strategy what you're currently playing um actually aligns with the criteria for building your new list um there's like the shortcut that you can take a lot of the time is that um uh e even if you are comfortable in a lot of strategies just being like oh like i i'm i've been playing this current deck for like a really long time and i think that like it solves a lot of the problems and they're like maybe i can just like make card changes and like with like like five to like 10 card changes i can like solve all these problems um just being aware that like well yes that can happen sometimes particularly with like higher color decks where um you have access to the entire card pool um don't necessarily like don't get super super caught up on like trying to play the deck that you think is really good right now and then also solve those problems with that deck um just you know again be open be open to like just having to play a different deck, playing different commanders, um, swapping, even just, like, minor strategies, like, maybe swapping your win conditions, um, specifically for, like, that kind of, like, for, like, the stacks building. Uh, cool. Um, so those are, that, that, I think that covers, for the most part, um, unless Morgan, I'm forgetting something, like, most of, like, the motivation, or, like, what actually gets you to a deck to start building in the first place. Yeah, um, I think I think that's uh, a pretty good summary of sort of how we of the factors that led us to settling on Hermit Druid, um, in, in yeah. terms of our our approach. Yeah, and I I guess if we want to like recap like how this applies specifically uh, to like Hermit Druid, if we were talking about it, um, yeah, so that one ended up being like in a commander pairing that is well within our comfort zone through SEO's Timna is probably, it's almost certainly my most played commander. Um, I, I'm guessing it's probably up there for Morgan as well. Like, I don't, I don't know how much you've played cats over the years, but 
I, I feel it's like up it's there. probably I played, up there. I played a decent yeah. amount of their SEOs team now, for yeah. sure. Um, so, well within comfort zone. Um, but uh, we had sort of dropped it for a while for other stuff, uh, and that other stuff was, like, Thrasios team, the Turbo stuff, or, like, Morgan had played a bit of Blue Pod, like, just played some other commander and, like, five-color pairings and stuff. Um, and we realized that we needed to solve problems having to do with uh, stacks and having a good mid-range game and hey would you look at that Thrastimna is like really good at busting mid-range games wide open and sort of has a really high floor versus stacks um so that's why we went with that and then obviously um we had problems with you know yeah winning through counter magic winning through stacks uh winning quickly um all of which Hermadruid helped out with um so once you actually have a deck in mind uh and maybe you've like put together the initial list or like you've taken a list from wherever from the database from a deck server um you stole a list from a friend uh, you played it a bit um this is sort of like what i would say is the real meat and potatoes of uh sort of brewing decks for like brewing like real decks or like <laughs> i uh we we need to have come up with a better term for this before starting this episode because it's like it's not it's not tournament deck specifically but it's also not like just your run-of-the-mill brew anyway i, I well, didn't use we'll a, them, a lot of like, these techniques yeah. i didn't use nearly as formally when i was brewing uh kayla for example <laughs> yeah ex exactly um i okay well we'll shortcut we'll shortcutting to call them real decks but by real decks i think serious uh, is probably a better serious okay well we'll call them serious decks uh yeah you know what serious is fine I'll lock that one because, in. Because, like, um, the key is not, you know, I feel like real is often used as, like, a straight signifier of power level, and, like, that's not yeah, yeah, what yeah, we're exactly. talking about that, here. That, we're that talking about... That, that's not at all. It's, like, yeah. Decks that you are trying to make as good as you can make them, and it doesn't actually matter how good that is uh, to apply yeah. these, uh, these techniques. Exactly. Um, so... Yeah, getting into the real meat and potatoes of brewing serious decks, um, which is tuning. Um, so obviously, uh, I mean, the precursor to this is uh, to like any of these strategies that we're going to go over, any of these things that we're going to go over, is that um, you really just have to be playing a lot of games with a deck with a serious brew. Um, there's not really any way around that. Um, obviously, like if you're a very strong theoretical deck builder, um, you can bypass a bit of that. If you're like very familiar with the archetype and you have um like a very good idea of like how all these packages interact and stuff um but that i i feel like that is going to be a very narrow case um of like you have an insane amount of theoretical uh rigor and a ton of experience building this deck that also happens to solve all the problems that you need solving and you haven't already been building this deck <laughs> very narrow um so end point is basically you're gonna have to play a lot of games, uh, and you're gonna have to get like a lot of experience in to like actually understand what, like what the outcomes of this of these upcoming strategies are, um, for that tuning. Um, yeah, I think but, you can, yeah, you can so also we'll just... goldfish. Uh, you can goldfish for certain types of information. Um, I mm, think people yeah. like often sort of make the mistake of trying to goldfish. Like, if you're just goldfishing a deck that isn't, like, you know, a pure turbo deck and you're just trying to figure out how fast is it, um, if you just try and get a sense of, like, does this deck feel good when it's a, a relatively flexible deck, you're not gonna sort of, 
find that because I think it's hard to evaluate, um, you know, how how good it feels to play like your Timna into some value engine into whatever, you know, and you're winning yeah. on turn six, but you had four pieces of interaction and, you know, what stacks. But there are things you can goldfish for. Um, speed is like the most obvious one. Um, yeah, but but there uh, wind are wind condensity also, is another huge one. Yeah, wind uh, condensity. Like how 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 often do you have access to your wind by like the third turn? Yeah, and and like you can also sort of goldfish, uh, kind of like against a specific deck in a way. Like you could sort of goldfish with an eye to okay, let's pretend there was a Winota deck in this pod. Like, is the way I'm playing this game actually conducive to me winning that pod, right? Like, if yeah. I'm winning slowly, if I'm going to be hit hard by, like, any stacks piece, uh, you know, maybe not. Um, but I think, you know, there's no substitute for just getting games against against mixed opponents. But uh, there is utility in gold fishing, even if it's not um, general utility, it's more specific. Yeah, there, I think... I think probably a good descriptor for this is like the the base here is that you need to play as many games as possible, and then there are various ways to shortcut to shortcut parts of that and to like acquire that information in possibly more time and effort efficient ways. But the 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 base case is really if you're having any problems or if you need more information is just to play more games, um, and just like accrue that information naturally. And if you can find people who are willing to play specific things against you, that can yeah. Uh, that be, one too be very valuable obviously like some people like you know you don't just have a team of people whose job it is to make your testing as impactful yeah, as yeah, possible yeah. but um it's uh if you can you know even if you just know someone who like plays a deck and you're like okay you know i haven't played it you know i don't play against very much turbo so like i'm gonna go look for games online and i'm gonna you know invite a friend who like i know plays turbo to you know play some games um you or can you can go like get... even levels deeper than that and be like orchestrate pods between people that you know play specific decks right like be like okay like this saturday i'm gonna like or like i'm gonna dm people and be like okay like i have this block of time on saturday like can you guys play in this pod just so i can get like specific testing for that <laughs> or or do um, what we did get a second person yeah. who also wants to tune the same deck yeah and yeah and then one I was of about you to can say. play the thing you want to play against <laughs> because they're still getting useful information <laughs> exactly um which actually that actually does help a lot in terms of like if you have a bunch of different people that are all looking to optimize the same deck um you can sort of like basically turn that into a team as long as you all like trust each other's evaluation and opinion and stuff because like you can you know you have a pod full of people that are all looking to optimize the same deck you have one person playing that deck everybody else plays like the optimal testing pod for that that you need the information for and then you have like an in-depth breakdown of the game after the fact and like what worked what didn't um but yeah, it really yeah, it's just it's just playing games. <laughs> um, cool. So yeah, we'll we'll go into this, like sort of the strategies that we use when tuning, um, and just sort of like talk through some of them and some examples, uh, particularly having to do with Hermitude, and then like maybe some broader stuff uh, for some of them. Um, the first one that we have here uh, is probably I think the first step uh, that we go to. Um, honestly, I, I start doing this, um, even before I played games necessarily, I, I do like a bit of gold fishing, then go in and like check this, um, immediately, which is just identifying effects that, 
um, are in the deck that you started with. So again, wherever that came from, a friend, the database, a deckless server, um, just online in general. Um, identifying effects that you that are in that deck that you don't actually think that you need. Um, so like a, sp a very specific example is um, for playing Hermit Druid, um, typically uh, a lot of Hermit Druid decks have historically had both Narcomoeba and a Fate Stitcher in it, uh, or Dredgecape uh, Zombie, um, for having two bodies that come back from the graveyard in order to cast a Dread Return, along with having the Hermit Druid in play. Um, and for us, we almost always felt that we didn't actually need the second body. We like almost always had a Dork or a Thrasios out, um, which meant that we only really needed the Narcomoeba. Um, so, like, we, we basically immediately cut the Fate Stitcher, um, out of the deck, uh, because it was just something that we identified as, it's in uh, the decks a lot, it's a default include, it's a default include for a reason, but we didn't think that we really needed it for, uh, what we needed the deck for. Yeah, and if you look at sort of, um, you know, I think we've, as we've sort of stated, we were tending on taking this deck a little bit more mid-range, you realize that, like, the situation where you need that second graveyard body is... Uh, when you don't already have a creature in play, you don't have three mana to uh, unearth your, or sorry, to disturb your uh, hermit, your malevolent hermit, and you have a hermit druid activation. And those are like, that's a very narrow set of requirements, because if you're, say, getting a hermit druid out on turn one or turn two, and you don't have another creature in hand, um, like how are you doing that? I mean, like, maybe you just naturally had it off of, like, a Lotus Petal. Um, yeah. But that's, you know, like, maybe you just don't play that hand that way. Um, yeah, like... And if you're, like, if you're finding you it off, just... like, Crypt of Green Sun Zenith, then you're gonna have the mana to disturb the the Malevolent Hermit, and if you're... Hermit. Or just cast Thrasios. Or just cast Thrasios. Right? If you have... Yeah. yeah, if you have three colored mana, then, like, one to activate Hermit, two to cast Thrasios, that does it. Um, and so, like, all of these things, we sort of went, like, it's it's a very narrow uh, situation where we don't have, like, any one of these potential solutions to that problem, and we need that second graveyard body. Um, and, and so that's, you know, we decided we could cut it. And there have been a couple games where I wished I had it, um, but there have also, <laughs> having played decks yep. with cards like that in them <laughs> there would have been a lot more games and you know with the other combo pieces in the deck like there have been a lot more games where i've been cursing myself for drawing narcomoeba and dread return and memories uh, yeah than exactly. there have games where it's like man i really wish i had another one of these cards in my deck yeah it's uh th and this one yeah this this is definitely like a i think that uh example case might be like a a bit hard to grasp at first blush just as well because like it's there's we come from a time of uh slot efficiency was a huge deal for a lot of decks uh particularly for something like uh hulk uh and hulk packages also sort of like bleed over into hermit druid packages in terms of like there's sort of these variable sized wincon packages that like give you a non-linear they get like a non-linear amount better the larger the packages get but the larger packages also decrease your card quality um it's it can be a bit hard to conceptualize and especially to evaluate correctly um for those cards but 
just remember that this point also applies to like just like a ton of other stuff like okay this deck's playing like five separate win cons uh i don't think i need all five separate win cons i think i can probably cut one of the win cons do i really need kin and basalt in this deck with isochron scepter anthropical consult like and like mnemonic betrayal and a prayer's grass package and like like reanimation too it's like okay do i need all of these no i can cut one of them um it, it, it applies to like a lot of different cases yeah, and I think that's also, like, something that sort of shifts as you play a deck is you realize uh, which win cons you're, like, leaning on and which ones you're maybe not using as much. Like, when we were sort of, when you start with a Hermit Druid deck, you're like, yeah, the primary game plan is Hermit Druid. And, like, is Hermit Druid activate Dread Return Mythorical win? And then you start to yeah. realize it's like, okay, maybe that's not the primary plan. Maybe the primary plan is actually, um, like... Her activating Hermit Druid after getting Thorical into play some other way, just because you know it's a lot less risky. It's an uncounterable or consult, like yeah. you know I'm I'm going to be spending a lot of time, uh, you know, cat like going for consults some other way, either with consult, either by activating the Hermit Druid, either by or using something like a Sacred Guide or a Divining Witch if you're playing it, um, and then you know you can sort of realize okay maybe if this is actually not the primary plan. Um, you know, can I afford to start trimming some of the pieces for that? So, like, the second Hermit Druid, or the second Graveyard Body was, like, relatively easy. I've been considering, uh, even while keeping, like, the Dread Return Malevolent Hermit stuff, I have been considering just cutting the Memories Journey. Um, yeah. Because I'm not, like, the times when I'm going for the, the quote-unquote risky line of activating Hermit Druid to, to get Oracle out of my Graveyard... Uh, I'm, like, not feeling particularly, uh, like, I'm not, uh, gonna be doing that, you know, when I think there's, like, a bunch of interaction and it might just go horribly wrong. I'm gonna be looking for, like, safer wins in cases like that. So, you know, maybe I can just not play the memories journey so then I don't have to worry about drawing it and I can, uh, still sometimes, you know, get the value out of the dread return and the hermit yeah, as a one-card like, win uh, you know, if if everyone's like more or less hellbent, then like having Hermit Druid as a one card win con might still be valuable. It's still very valuable, but yeah. you know you don't need the protection as much, and that's like, uh, you know, that's sort of illustrating how how you know as my perceptions of the deck changed as I played it and which win cons I was focusing on. You know, it felt like I was maybe freeing up some slots that historically like have been have been you know auto includes yeah. or staples of the genre things that you like would not consider cutting at all um it is actually sort of funny as well though that uh <laughs> i think you're you're considering cutting uh mem journey and just keeping the dread return which i think is like totally fine by the way but it's also funny that a uh, shaper has actually gone the entirely different direction which is just cutting the dread return and only playing permit mem journey and authorical <laughs> <laughs> just so you know upkeep activate hermit druid put the uh, thoracle back on top draw into it cast it etc um but like same same sort of idea right like same sort of stuff uh just like cutting cards that like you previously had thought are just like staples and like uncuttables because of like lived play experience with the deck and being like okay like this this stuff isn't actually as necessary as i might have like first thought um and 
it's sort of like in a pair with that point um is the next point um which i think i this i forget where i first heard about i'll i'll read this out for i'd sorry i have a really bad habit of like getting into the backstory behind something before reading it out um so this point is uh identifying effects that you wish that you had access to in a deck um first and then figuring out what cards actually have that effect and can fill in the slot and whether or not they're good enough. Um, like the best card in that effect is good enough to actually include in the deck. Um, I forget where I heard about this concept. It might have even been in my Yu-Gi-Oh days at one point um, where like sort of I, I, I learned about like how to conceptualize this way of building decks. Um, but the idea is that like you basically you in your mind you're you've played some some number of games with a deck and you're like man i really wish that there was a card that did x um in the deck um i man i i really wish that there was a card that let me like remove like three creatures at once uh and i like i still want to keep my board but like I, I wish i could like kill like an opposing like player's board at like just like a decent mana cost in an accessible way um and like solidifying that want for that effect in your mind and then using that going through like scryfall or searching through like a card database and trying to find cards that like roughly approximate that effect because you're like almost never going to find a card that like actually does the exact thing that you want obviously like either it doesn't exist or it's probably banned oh my god i want like i want like three mana for free well yeah it's black lotus is banned for a reason but you're, like, you, you can find uh, cars that are, like, analogous to that effect. Um, I think, like, a, a great example here is, like, the... Uh, after playing just regular Thrasios Timna Hermit Druid for a while, the thought that kept popping up in my head, um, and I'm sure, Morgan, it was for you as well, um, but I can only really speak to my experience here, which is that um, I, I kept getting this thought in my head of, like, man, I really wish that I could just get a Hermit Druid with haste. I just, like, really want a creature that I could tutor that, like, does the Hermit Druid thing, um, but I don't want to, like, have to, like, play an extra card. Like, I don't want to play Lightning Greaves, because, like, they're fine, but they have anti-synergy and with, like, an oof, and, like, I have to, like, actually find them before doing a Hermit Druid thing to actually have a hasty Hermit. I wish I just, like, had a Hermit Druid that didn't have to tap to activate. Um, and, and, and also, like, historically, you spent a little while trying to solve that problem uh, by getting yeah. the next best thing, which was a Hermit Druid with Flash. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I've, I've tried, I've tried a lot to like work through. The, yeah, this is for, for the record, major reoccurring problem in my brewing of Hermit Druid. Um, for a long time, it was doing stuff like, uh, playing like going really, really far into instant speed stuff. So playing like obviously Court of Calling, but also like Aether Vial, Emergent Zone, Vivian Champion of the Wild, or whatever it is, the three mana Vivian that gives creatures spells Flash. Like, just, like, that kind of stuff to try to, like, sneak a Hermit Druid in an end step um, so that, like, it, like, sort of has haste. Um, the other way that I went about this as well was, like, I, I played with, like, Breakfast for a long time. Breakfast is, like, sort of a hasty Hermit Druid. I really didn't like that combo that much. I tried with Lightning Greaves. Lightning Greaves was, like, sort of awkward and it, like, didn't really do the thing that I wanted to that much. Um, I tried uh, with, actually, Swift Reclamation plus Dervona Druid. For a bit, um, because Swift Rack can actually give a Hermit Druid haste because it turns it into a not creature that can activate and then also layers with Devoted Druid. So, like, I tried a lot of solutions to this problem, uh, and 
it ended up being that like really what I was actually looking for wasn't necessarily like a hermit druid with haste or like I, I okay if they printed a hermit druid with haste tomorrow yes obviously I'd play it but um really what the answer was wasn't that I wanted a hermit druid with haste it was that I wanted a demonic consultation with haste slash a demonic consultation on legs um which ended up being sacred guide right sacred guide is very much a consult on legs with I mean obviously you have some deck building restrictions there but um, the idea is that it, it, like, it fills this niche of like, man, I really wish I had like something that like a body in this deck that could empty my library on the same turn that it gets played. And Sacred Guide fits that very nicely. Um, but it's really just about like, I, again, this is one of those things where it's like identifying a problem in quotes. This is like sort of a looser definition of a problem, I guess, but like identifying like sort of what the issue is, what you want, and then afterward going in and, like, sort of backfilling that problem or finding a solution to that problem with the existing card pool. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that that also kind of parallels the original development of Sacred Hulk, right? Where it was like... Okay, yeah, exactly. Latman seems like a good card that just kind of wins the game pretty easily on its own. Um, and I want to play Flash Hulk because that combo's dumb, but I don't want to play like a seven card flash hulk package you know i want to be immune to like graveyard uh removal like i don't want to you know have to worry about things like death right shaman um and that was you know like a lot of those factors are actually somewhat like they're not exactly the same but they're somewhat similar to uh yeah. to some of the factors that influenced uh our brew of of sacred hermit yeah definitely um yeah I, morgan i don't know actually how much you use this like sort of mental model um but it is like i will say this is like one of the ones that i like absolutely subconsciously use the most um in terms of brewing decks is like or like is is the most recognizable to me of like figuring out again figuring out the like your like dream effect ahead of time and then like figuring out how to make that work with the card pool uh i i definitely like I have sometimes done that generally for me that happens a little bit more in like the deck selection phase where it's like, I right. want a deck that can, you know, do this and, you know, has, you know, like I want a deck that can win in one turn, you know, through, through like these types of effects or, you know, with these types of cards, um, I'm right. less like, oh, in playing this deck, I want this very specific uh, type of effect. But yeah, it's gotcha. definitely... Uh, like, it does happen. Yeah. Um, cool. Uh, next up, um, there uh, is another point here, which is identifying uh, problems or weaknesses in your list and then how to shore them up with swaps. Um, this is like very closely related to the previous point slash concept uh but is like very much its own thing um morgan i know you had like specifically stuff to say about this yes so this was like uh we we spent a lot of time sort of going okay uh how do we deal with um <laughs> i mean we we put it very specifically which was how do we deal with crom installed games but yeah like it, it wasn't just that it was sort of like yeah, it's okay, a more broad problem how you know assuming we can't just get in with timna over and over again 
um, and and creatures are piling up on the board. You know, how can we deal with this? And like we've been playing Cyclonic Rift the whole time, um, but that's one card, and often it can be quite difficult to resolve because people who have spent a lot of time piling all these creatures onto the board tend to not want to let you bounce them all. Um, and so we we were looking for solutions, um, and we tried like some kind of interesting stuff. Uh, we tried a couple uh, like niche removal spells. Um, we I I know I think we tried... March of Swirling Mist came out of that. Yeah, um, March uh, experimentation. I, you tried um, Grim Hireling, and that was yep. like you know we're thinking oh well we can use it to like deal with problematic effects, but you know, it wasn't a perfect solution because the problem we were trying to solve was that we couldn't get in effectively. Couldn't get in, <laughs> which, like, sort of like, neutralizes okay, Grim Hireling. Um, <laughs> and then, like, this, you know, this was a problem where we didn't... I, I wouldn't necessarily say, like, we solved it. It's still an issue. Um, yeah. But uh, we... Like, the most effective thing we found was actually the Wing Crafter. Um, which... <laughs> Yeah, uh, sounds like it. You know, it doesn't solve the problem on its face, but it it sort of softens the problem a little bit. Where it's like, okay, now we can maintain our card advantage and our our card draw. Um, you can also this was a mode that we actually didn't initially consider with Wing Crafter, but uh, wound up becoming relevant at a few different points. Um, is that when you just have a bunch of creatures in hand? Um, you can use the wing crafter to to like turn each of them into a flying jump blocker. Like if a crom yeah, is beating is you down, you go like super cool, useful. <laughs> I'll play Findhorn elves. I'll swing in with wing crafter, draw my card with Timna, uh, and then I'll get attacked by Crom, Block with the Finhorn elves. Uh, play another creature, bond it to the wing crafter, and repeat. Um, yeah, <laughs> which like can buy you enough time and card advantage to to come up with like. To find one of your more permanent solutions um and you know it's just kind of a an interesting um between you know the ways we felt we could just still win through those stalled board states with you know just play out a sacred guide and then try and get a thoracal into play and activate it and dodge a yeah. lot of interaction plus a card like wing crafter which can help you maintain card advantage and and you know give you some blockers and buy you some time um you know we found like uh a few partial solutions sort of working together to mitigate that problem yeah it's it like again it's the identifying of problems is like super critical to at least the way that we optimize decks and like brew decks and tune decks um but <laughs> The, like, very important thing to remember, sort of, like, the kernel of wisdom to take out of this is that, like, a lot of the time, the problem, like, the solutions to those problems aren't single cards, it's not, like, single deck building choices, it's not, like, single play pattern choices, it's, like, the interaction of a bunch of different things a lot of the time, uh, as well as just the fact that, like, maybe this deck doesn't actually particularly solve that problem, like, particularly efficiently maybe like you actually in order to like co like completely solve that problem for the deck that you're building like you actually just have to change out like 10 slots like i just need to play like 10 pieces of increasingly bad mass removal to actually like totally solve that problem so we're gonna look for like a workaround or a mitigator instead uh cool um 
There's also, um, I have a couple more here. Uh, I, I was actually a pretty big fan of this next point, which is um, sort of identifying trade-offs uh, for certain inclusions in a deck. Um, I think this is a really good practice to get into um, when... Uh, I, I think a lot of the time you can sort of, um, if you've been working on a deck for a long time, you can get lazy with evaluation um, for certain cards and you can sort of like, like you end up like sort of like dropping some internal reasoning um, for cards over time as like if you've been playing with them for a really long time, you sort of end up like just subconsciously working them into your brain as like, yeah, this is just like part of the deck because it does like x specific thing and sort of forgetting the initial reason why you put it into the deck was because yes it does x specific thing but it also does x x and x um and uh like it those reasons sort of get lost and that contributes to um issues where you are also forgetting about what you're not playing in order to include that card or like what you're missing out on for uh playing that card um to give a very uh a, a very I, i'd say like illustrative example although like i don't think this is going to be the case for like almost any other card is specifically putting sacred guide in a deck um super super obvious case of trade-offs here right um when you have a sacred guide in your deck you have a creature tutorable consult that can happen the same turn you're also not playing any other white cards <laughs> they're like very very clear trade-offs right you have like this very high wind con density or like this this piece that increases your wind con density by a bunch uh but you're also losing a bunch of these good cards and you can like directly weigh those um but this also does apply to stuff like we were talking about earlier uh extensive hermit druid packages um so you end up with trade-offs with like hermit druid packages where it's again uh how many dead cards am i willing to run for like these marginal upsides or like just the dead cards for making specifically hermit druid a better card in your deck um so like how many trade-offs are you willing to make there or even more broadly than talking about specific packages um talking about like maybe a mid-range deck or sorry a mid-range package in a deck like blue pod like okay how many slots am i willing to dedicate for this mid-range package uh because every slot that i dedicate to the mid-range package is like it's reducing my speed or it's reducing the uh, ability for me to find my combos it's reducing my ability to protect my combos etc etc they're like when you're including a card in a deck that's a slot that you could have used for something else and there are inherent trade-offs there that you have to think about and it obviously like as sort of i just went through that that runs the gambit from specific cards introducing trade-offs because they have downsides to all the way up to like how large do specific packages in my deck have to be to not like overlap or like to actually do the job that I need them to do like consistently while also allowing me to do all the other stuff that I need to yeah, do. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, maybe like obviously Sacred Guide is is the most extreme example you're gonna find, uh, or second most extreme. I think Polymorph is the most extreme, but oh, yeah. um, <laughs> but uh, like I think they're you know looking at some other decks uh might provide sort of more generally applicable examples a big one is like secondary win conditions in a deck like Razakats. um people have tried bomberman because you're already playing the lion's eye diamond so then the obvious inclusion of oriok salvagers is only one extra slot which is obvious which is good um but you know it's a somewhat uh risky combo people have looked at things like uh swift druid or kin and basalt um and, you know, then it gets into a bit of an awkward question of, um, you know, collector roof. Like, how aggressively are you finding it? Are you potentially playing other 
versions of that effect. Um, and this was another thing, uh, going back to the example, uh, reused of, of blue pod where, um, I know some people have wanted to not play artifact hate because obviously it's a bit of a nampo with birthing pod. A, it is a pod um, deck, <laughs> but like, you know, in my list, I went, okay, I'm, I'm going to play, uh, I'm going to play Vanifar, which makes me feel a little bit more free to play this. Um, plus, you know, do you also try and include an Emiel combo that doesn't require, uh, artifact activations? Like, Emiel Dockside is in the deck, but, you know, do you play... You like, uh, Emiel Feldar Guy's Cradle. Yeah, like, you know, are you looking to set up things like that? Um, how do you build the deck? Um, and it felt like I did have to... There were slots I felt like I needed to include in order to support a collector oof in this deck that fundamentally, you know relied on on pod at least for part of its wins and like pod type combos for most of its wins um and that yeah that you know d like did involve costs um and i i also tried like okay can i can i without running like actual literal collector roof for stony silence or no rod can i deal with artifacts you know somewhat effectively and like i I tried Root Maze, I tried uh, Meltdown, um, and, you know, like, those also carried their own costs, um, you know, melting, <laughs> playing Meltdown and then trying to play Dockside, you know, kind of, yeah, kind not, of a bit not silly. Yeah, a great combo. <laughs> um, like, Root Maze just is, is, like, a very difficult effect to just be comfortable Break playing under yep. in the early game, which is when you really want it. Um, Blind obedience is nice, but maybe not particularly yeah, like not quite powerful enough to actually do the job that you needed to do. Yeah, so so like you do have to. Uh, I think like a a case where you know considering trade offs is going to be really relevant is when you're looking at what kind of hate you're playing. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, it's also like, I mean, even uh. Like, even outside of, like, the collector of fate stuff, uh, this is, like, very much the case for, like, rule of loss as well. It's like, okay, like, obviously, rule of loss come with a drawback, but, like, can I mitigate those? Like, do my win cons work under the rule of law? Like, what do I actually have to take out of the deck and, like, again, backfill to make it actually, like, function under rule of law? Or, again, any kind of that stuff. It's just, like, it's always a game of trade-offs. Um, and, you like, if you can't... <laughs> If you can't find the trade-off for a card going into your deck, you probably have to look a bit deeper at it, um, because there almost certainly is a trade-off somewhere. It might be at the level of, like, just taking up a bit of space for an effect that you don't need as much, um, which is certainly still a trade-off, just a bit more abstract, um, but there, there is probably going to be one there. Um... And then finally, uh, probably my favorite part of the deck tuning process, uh, even though the results of it are not my favorite, um, which is uh, just doing like multiple, multiple, multiple rounds of aggressive cutting um, for a deck. Uh, really I loves cutting cards. I love cutting cards. I'm addicted to cutting cards from decks. Um, I I love looking at a deck and being like, yeah, I could I could get this down to 85 cards, even though it looks incredibly tight. Um, my issue is that once I make those cuts, uh, it's incredibly annoying to backfill and usually ends up re-including some of the cut cards um, just to make space again. But um, really, like, 
I, I'm not going to tell anybody listening to this podcast that you need to cut cards with the same vigor that I do. Um, but it's a very, very good idea um, to, uh, I like when, when it gets like really in depth into the weeds, like when we're doing um, testing for like a larger tournament or like going through a really uh, intense refinement cycle for a deck, um, we'll be playing like maybe like three or four nights out of a week like playing a couple of games of cdh with a testing group and then like afterwards like after every session i'll just like go through the deck and be like okay these are like the five cards that i don't really think are good in the deck right now and here are like the five other like flex slots that like could be added to the watch list later and like if i cut these five cards right now what would i put back in for them um do i have slots that i put back in for them do i have like cards that like solve problems that or like do i like want to test cards that i think solve problems that i think need solving in the deck right now but just like going through and like aggressively like in your mind being like okay i think these five cards are probably on the cutting room floor right now um they, they might not ever make the, their way out of the deck but like i'm feeling like i want to cut those cards after this session and like maybe test cutting those cards putting in other stuff for them and just like sort of just aggressively pruning decks uh, at some point in the testing process because it's very easy to end up with just slots in your deck that are locked just because they've like the cards have been in your deck for that long and they don't actually make you feel strongly one way or another it's like okay like this i'm never happy to see this card but i'm never like unhappy to see this card like does that ever like actually register on a level when you're looking at it without the immediate experience of just having like played three games of it yeah probably not so like you know just, like, getting to a point where you're happy to be, like, I'm just going to drop a bunch of cards from this list, see how it feels without them, and then, like, I'll put them back if uh, if it ends up being bad without them. Just, like, making sure that you actually get to the point where you are cutting cards. Yeah, it's definitely, like, it may sort of seem like if you cut cards and then put them back in that you haven't actually accomplished anything, and from, like, a, a fully external sense, you haven't, but knowing that they are cuttable is actually very valuable. Um, and and knowing that you have cut them and felt bad about cutting them and, like, strengthened your reasoning for having had them in the deck is also very valuable. Yeah, and, like, <laughs> I feel like... <laughs> probably we shouldn't be doing this as close to tournaments as we wind up doing it. But yeah. <laughs> every time, shortly before a tournament, we'll, like, sit down across the table from each other and we'll lay out, like four cards and go okay which two of these do you think i should play like that's yeah. sort of you know the the like the final step is you know i'm looking at like uh i've got my my dispel and my priest of titania on the table and i'm like okay which one of these am i playing um or, or Actually, recently it's like it's, it's priest of, it's priest of titania dispel survival of the fittest in notion thief and it's like okay what one <laughs> of these four are going in the deck um and and like just knowing you know that like uh you know i mean i think it's it's important one of the things that that illustrates is we're not doing we're not looking at like slot for slot swaps right it's yeah not, it's oh not like, that, that's a, that's oh, actually a huge one <laughs> dispel or yeah. miscast or or even like do i play dispel or nature's claim um you know we're we're looking at like much uh like cross cross purpose swaps um or cross purpose uh slots because they're not really swaps um yeah th th this is a this is actually a huge thing and like thank you for reminding me because i feel like i've been talking about this sort of like on and off for like literal months um, or, or it's been like sitting like rent free in my 
brain for like probably years at this point. Um, but uh, a large part of building decks is also, yeah, like once you get the general composition of a deck down in terms of like, you know, how what percentage of the deck is like feels good to be win cons or dedicated to like win con slots, what deck, what percentage of the deck feels right to you to have like the right amount of like interaction, right amount of removal, right amount of counter magic, right amount of value pieces, et cetera, et cetera. Once you get like the rough ratios down, a lot of tuning decks is not at all about like, okay, uh, do I think like dispel or miscast is better here? Obviously, like those come up, um, and it's like good to like have an understanding of like what specific like um same role card swaps uh you're happy with and you think are good in a deck. Um, but a lot, lot more of the time, it's not like one for one slot. Sl oh, sorry, one for one swaps in terms of like okay, what piece of counter magic is best for this slot? It's what card is best for the slot because like we're evaluating this on like effects that I want once I already have a a good like functional ratio of all the different things that I like the default things that I want going on in this deck. I just wanted to get that out there because it it annoys me when specifically uh and i'm sorry if you're listening to this and have ever asked me this question i promise i don't hate you it's just the the act of it happening is annoying <laughs> to me which is uh when people are like oh so i see that you cut like this cast from this deck so what did you put in for it um in like maybe i made like three swaps to a deck i made like i cut like a dispel and two stacks pieces and put in like a value piece and like a win con a win condition piece and like a different piece of interaction they're like oh so you did like a one-for-one one swap of, like, that dispel for that piece of interaction. And I was like, no, I cut the three cards in the deck that I felt bad about and, like, felt really bad, and I put in three cards that I wanted to play. Yeah, uh, like, uh, you know, there are occasional times where it might be useful to acknowledge, like, I think when we wound up cutting Nature's Claim, it was, yeah, it wasn't like we swapped it for Force of Vigor, but it was like, yeah. with the printing of Boseju, and our decision that we wanted to include Force of Vigor, you know, is like, okay, now it feels like we have the density of this effect. And, you know, then shortly after we cut Nature's Claim, like, it, it actually wasn't yeah. even a direct one-for-one -one swap. It, it, it wasn't. It was, there. like, all three of those were in the deck for a very, like, decent period of time and before we, like, went, we made the decision to be like, We have more of this yeah. effect than we need. Which one do we what's like the, the What's least? the worst version of this effect? Yeah. Um, Which very well, if Force of Vigor or Poseidon were worse cards, could have been one of them, but it in fact ended up being the Nature's Claim. Yeah, and I think that that's like, it's a it's an important trap to avoid falling into of just yeah. uh, just viewing everything as straight swaps and and uh, overly a related trap is just overly locking yourself into ratios. Um, yeah, you can there, especially because like the quote-unquote optimal ratios in a deck completely change with both play pattern and meta, right? Like, absolutely. if you're playing against all stacks, like, you're, yeah, you're obviously going to have to cut down on counter magic to some degree and probably either go up on, you know, like, win condition density, removal, or value pieces. Definitely. Um, yeah, I think that's actually pretty much all we had for the main topic laid out. Um, which is hilarious to say it because I I think me and Morgan can probably go on talking about um if not deck building methodology or tuning methodology, at least talking about sacred druid or just like Thrasios Tim to shells for like literal hours, but I think we have to cut it off somewhere. <laughs> um so I think uh 
what ending points summarizing points we didn't write any of this down but uh, let's try to come up with a neat bow for this uh for this main topic um i think just in general um trying to remember that like pretty much every card in the deck is cuttable to some degree or not um it just like the situations uh, in which they are cuttable get more and more uh, convoluted and require like more things to happen in specific ways for you to actually like be able to cut them obviously i'm not expecting people to cut like soaring some mana from their deck or cut risk study from your deck obviously um but just oh no 42, having 42 <laughs> thread incoming <laughs> but just you know like having having the option in your head to like like, recognizing that those cards are good and that they should be in your deck, but also recognizing that, like, there's nothing stopping you from cutting basically anything in your deck. It's your deck. You should build it as you like. Just, you know, having, like, really, really good, um, re really good, good reasons, uh, for basically all of the cards that are in your list. Um, I think probably a, a really great place to be is if you can look at your, like, main serious deck. Uh, look at it and like literally justify every single card in the deck. Um, I'm not saying that you should like be doing that as like a check, like every time you finish a revision of the deck to go through and like justify every card to yourself. I'm just saying that like you should feel pretty comfortable about explaining exactly like how your interaction suite is composed, exactly why you're playing like these win conditions and not these win conditions, these like tutors that like find your stuff and what they don't find and like all your like various like small little tech pieces and if that explanation is well i just like it um then that's fine but like maybe you should do like a bit more thinking on like while you're playing that card and like potentially if you could make space with it for sure morgan do you have a do you have a good moral of the story at the end here clean it up uh i mean i guess uh you know we you just got you got to be careful uh and make sure uh, make sure not to get too attached to your sacred cows. <laughs> Which is great because I might spoil that depending on what the uh what the title to this episode was, but <laughs> we'll we'll leave it there. Um, cool beans. Uh, we are unfortunately. I think this is this might be like the first time that we've skipped it in a long time. Anyway. Episode full first today. Um, we're I think we're gonna pass on gut check today. It's not particularly interesting with two people. Um, although Getting I'm, one I'm off the cuff answer. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sure we could have come up with a replacement, but uh, we'll try to funnel that one into our listener question, um, which we do have today. A reminder that if uh, you would like a question answer on the show, we have a channel on our Discord that you can go to. The listener questions that discussion channel and uh, just uh, submit a listener question. We uh, might end up answering it on the pod. Um, but this one is from Emsmax. Uh, this question is, if Stifle cost Phyrexian blue instead of blue, how many decks would play it? Um, it's an interesting one, huh? I tend to think it would go in a lot of decks. Um, yeah. So I think it would go in decks that, like, that would make it quite a strong, uh, piece of interaction Particularly, um, it would be very appealing for um, turbo decks um, because it allows... Oh, really? Well, sorry, maybe not turbo. It, it, it would be very appealing for decks that want to 
be aggressively developing their own game plan. Um, maybe not exactly mm. winning, but like more free interaction just makes tapping out that much safer. Um, right. I, I was more thinking, though, that like it's more like for uh, control decks in a way that like or like control and mid-range decks. And it's less for me, it was it's less about like decks that are already tapping out and more of like an inclusion that would give you more license to tap out in those decks that are already like being yeah, interactive yeah, sorry, and just trying I, to I stop think, people from I think winning. I'll, I'll revise. I should, I should not have said turbo decks. That, <laughs> sure. But yeah, decks, <laughs> decks that are looking to very proactively tap out in the early game, um, especially because it's like generally pretty flexible against um, like the two biggest effects that are going to kill you out of nowhere are Oracle and Dockside. Mm. Right. Where it's like, you know, yep. when someone when someone goes turn one, uh, you know, land, crypt, rock, imperial seal, like okay, yeah, we might just be getting nazed next turn or or whatever it is. But um, when someone has like a bit of a slower start, uh, the two sort of easiest ways of going from you know maybe three or four mana to killing you are are either just oracle consulting you or playing dockside into playing something really expensive. And it gives you right. it gives you an answer to uh to both of those um that like lets you not have to worry so much about um not have to worry so much about holding up interaction to stop those, especially because like Dockside is a creature, which means most of the counter magic that hits it is not even one mana, it's two mana. <laughs> Yeah. Um which is or uh, zero, but <laughs> well yeah. I mean force yeah, will yeah. hits well, it. Presumably you're that, not yeah. pacting like super early. Hey man, you never know. Yeah. Dude, you have no because you have Phyrexian stifle now, so you can oh pact it and then God, stifle your the pack dream. trigger. <laughs> um, <laughs> the actual free counter magic. That's that's actually just like force of oh. with extra steps. So you're spending two cards at zero mana, you're spending two life. <laughs> oh my god. I'm just I'm just now picturing like every time you have a pact that you can't pay for. You just have yeah. to ask if the table has the yeah, Phyrexian has the Stifle. Stifle. It's like, okay, I'll pack this Nas if you Phyrexian Stifle me in my F key. <laughs> the, it's a whole new world of possibilities for politicking and, like, just barely not spite plays. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I feel like, uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of a weird one because I feel like it's almost certainly, it almost certainly has a place in, like, okay, starting from the slowest and working forward, I think, so, Curious Control definitely plays it, which is probably, is that the slowest blue deck in the format right now? It has to be, right? I mean, maybe just like teamer control stuff <laughs> or like, I mean, it depends on what you count as in the format. <laughs> True. Wait, what are you thinking? I mean, like my, my, my mind immediately <laughs> went to Baral, but I think there's stuff, okay. there's stuff up from Baral that's still slower than Curious Control. Um, okay. But but yeah, uh, I think I think any I, in terms of like decent decks that are very slow. <laughs> I think um, I think it it probably goes into most decks that are already playing like if you're already playing a dozen counter spells, you're probably gonna find a slot for this one. Yeah, I I it's okay. I think like probably literally every Thrasio deck plays it, right? Like that's probably uh... one of the lines. Thrust huh. Vile Turbo? Does that deck even still exist? I don't think so. Eh, I mean, uh, it's a fine deck. <laughs> nobody plays it. Um, dead deck. Uh, 
Yeah, I think I think I think every Thrasios deck would probably play it. Um, the question is like, do you do you end up playing it in like T and K? So I, River's I, been playing Stifle a bit. I think I think I, I actually really like it in T and K because it it does allow you to like play. A, you can do your your like Thrasios Timna impression where you just tap out on turn two for your Timna. Um, mm. and, and start drawing cards and having that like flexibility of hey I can do this and not think I'm just gonna die um, is right. like, a nice layer to add to that deck I think also yeah I guess like stifling Winota triggers is also pretty nice or like stifling uh, a Winota trigger on stifling a Winota trigger is pretty pretty underwhelming I would say I mean buying you an extra turn in a deck that like really needs the extra turn a lot of the time there seems pretty neat i don't know it just feels like yeah it's like you're like you're pretty likely to be getting there or sorry like one winota trigger is like just as likely to either whiff or not find anything that you actually care about right over the sure. course of one turn no no what it's really for is stifling or urza triggers oh yes <laughs> fuck you keegan <laughs> <laughs> you don't get to have constructs <laughs> uh, uh, um yeah, I, I feel like you probably end up with the Phyrexian Stifle in, like, a majority of the blue decks in the format. I think probably the fastest stuff skips out on it. Uh, yeah, but and... hear me out. You can stifle your own Mystic Remora upkeep trigger. Oh, my God. That even work? Wait, do, does Cumulative Upkeep put counters on as a cost? No. Or as a... No. They just go on? Yeah, so, so, like, <laughs> it actually would be potentially good where um, often with, with Cumulative Upkeep, you're, like you're not getting ahead because you're like spending the mana playing it yeah it's actually true right <laughs> yeah, so, so you, you go you to go like, like turn four with a remora tapping you down and then you suddenly stifle it and have like a whole thing going on with a remora or even like you could play it uh you know like if you play it turn uh turn one or turn two and then like you just stifle it for a turn and you use that to either get down some more mana or like mm. maybe land a timna or something could be kind of right. spicy <laughs> like yeah okay, you I mean, go turn uh, one obviously. remora turn two land dork turn three you stifle the remora trigger you play timna and you hold up a mana and then like hit another yeah. drop and now you're playing on two mana and you have a timna in play stonks <laughs> this just in stifle pretty good card in some situations <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i i feel like you probably end up with stifle in most of the blue decks in the format um yeah like the fastest stuff obviously not uh and then like potentially i think like it, it's probably just because stifle is one of those effects that like gets much better the more other counter magic you're playing like if you consistently have a piece of counter magic plus a stifle in your hand that's like an, an insane amount better than just having one or the other um, yeah, even sure. having like two counter spells or like two stifles, um, because it just covers so much more. So, and yeah, I, I think it's probably in most stuff. It does also. I think it is like generally. I don't like considering. I I think people who have talked about like, um, particularly with interactions with Thassa's Oracle, how you know it leaves them in a worse position than just countering the consult. Um, right, but like particularly i think uh stifling the thassa's oracle trigger after they've exiled their deck is actually um a pretty like the the value on that is enough higher than just countering the consult that it really is like yeah. 
unimpactful uh, factor. Yeah, 100%. Like, you're taking somebody out of the game completely versus them just, like, having a really awkward time winning. Yeah. Um, cool. Um, hope that was a valuable answer to the listener question. I think it's a pretty neat one, neat hypothetical. Um, and then, again, reminder, if you want a listener question on the show, you should uh, go into our Discord and go do that. Um, but I think that about wraps it up for this episode. Um, if anybody listening would like to reach out to us, any questions, comments, or concerns, you can contact us on Twitter at Into the North Pod, via our email at Into the North Podcast at gmail.com, or on our Discord server, uh, the invite link for which can be found in the description for this episode. Uh, an extra special thanks to all of our patrons who will cover the expenses for our show and will allow us to work toward improving the quality of the podcast. If you too would like to become a patron, we are at patreon.com slash into the north podcast. Another way you can support us is by our TCG Player affiliate link. Uh, so anytime you want to purchase something from TCG Player, if you use our affiliate link, which is also in the description, a portion of your purchase goes towards supporting the podcast. Thank you, as always, to the band Vox Cadre for our lovely podcast music, uh, and to Nate Slover for our equally lovely podcast logo. Next episode should be out in two weeks. Until then, see ya. Bye.